The DDoS threat. How prepared are community institutions? Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm discussing this topic today with Rodney Jaffe. He's Senior Vice President and Senior Technologist with Newstar. Rodney, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, happy to, Tom. To start out with, tell us a little bit about the two distinct types of DDoS attacks that we've seen against financial institutions in recent months. Well, you know, we talk about two different types of uh, DDoS attacks. I think what it really means is that there are two different objectives within the DDoS attacks. The first one is designed really to disrupt. And these are the DDoS attacks we've seen over the last, you know, eight or nine months, specifically from a group called uh, the Al-Qasam Cyberfighters. They've been targeting financial institutions, and it appears to be designed to disrupt their ability to do business but not to the extent that it actually puts them out of business. Uh, it's been quite interesting in the way that it evolved over time because in each case they've done just enough to disrupt but not enough to actually disable the banks. The other type of DDoS that we see, or the other objective, is one that's designed to interrupt the ability for banks to do business. And even within that, there are a couple of uh, different things that occur. There are the uh, DDoS attacks. There have been a couple of them that were designed to actually stop banks from being able to do business, and they were probably activist-based or uh, perhaps someone that had a beef with a bank. The second kind within that category is the one that was designed to stop victims of financial crime, corporate victims, from being able to identify the fact that they're actually having funds taken out of their accounts. In, in those cases, there was a prior attack with malware, which has compromised systems within those companies. Um, typically, uh, a controller in the company, whoever has access to uh, being able to make uh, transfers or able to set up transactions uh, in that uh, company's banking account. So what happens is that uh, that system gets compromised when the treasurer or the controller, whoever it is within the company, goes ahead and uh, makes transfers, typically, by the way, in payroll accounts and sets up payroll for, let's say, a Thursday evening, the criminals behind it will actually go in during the same session, connect to the bank via the compromised system, make transfers to their own mules or their own accounts almost always abroad, and then what they do is they launch a DDoS attack that makes sure that if the controller or if the victim uh, attempts to log into the bank account to check on the status of either balances or to make sure that the payroll is going through, they have difficulty connecting to the bank. And so this is an attack that actually occurs against the bank's website but is designed to cause a problem for the bank's customer, not the bank. There's obviously collateral damage that occurs because no one can get through the bank. And uh, the victim in, in this case is not the bank, it's actually the customer. But these are the, uh, the, the two main and the three sort of subgroups of uh, DDoS attacks that uh, have really been an issue, mostly for large banks uh, when it comes to Al-Qasam, but uh, the financial attacks designed to uh, attack uh, bank customers are more likely to occur with the smaller companies that are, that are more likely to, to business or to bank with local either uh, banks or credit unions. 
Well, that's a point I wanted to pick up on, because to this point, we have seen the attacks against larger institutions. So my question is, why must the community banks and credit unions now accept that they could be the next big financial targets? One thing that we've seen with consistency over the years is that criminals are more than happy to teach each other or learn from each other. And what's happened with the attacks against the large banks is a new mechanism, a new way of actually uh, launching DDoS attacks has been perfected over the last eight or nine months by the Arkham cyber fighters. It hasn't been lost on the criminals. And so the criminals have been watching exactly uh, how the Arkham cyber fighters have uh, been able to modify their attacks to adjust them to overcome the defenses that are being developed uh, almost on the, on, the, on the fly by the banks and by the service providers that protect those banks. And so the criminals have watched it. And in the last month or two, we've begun to see activities that show us that uh, the criminals are now using the same kinds of capabilities for what they're doing. So by definition, those criminals uh, are going to cause more of a problem for the smaller banks because that's uh, the uh, uh, ultimately uh, the, the source of the funds that they go after when they attack uh, local companies. Rodney, how would you rate these smaller institutions' current level of preparation for DDoS? If you'd asked me the question six months ago, I would have said that uh, they're quite poor. The uh, smaller banks really don't have the resources, they don't have the experience, and they don't have the exposure. But over the last six months, I think that many of them have gotten religion. They've really understood the real threat. Uh, I think most of them have been concerned that they would become targets, interestingly enough, of the Alcasum cyber fighters. In the conversations that I've had with smaller banks and credit unions who uh, come to me for advice, it shows that they really have been looking at tax against the larger banks for the first two or four months. They just assumed that it wouldn't be them. And then as there's been more awareness in the banking community, they've started to be much more concerned uh, about some cyber fighters. That obviously is going to stand in good stead when they have to deal with the attackers, the uh, small uh, financial frauds, um, you know, the wire, the wire transfers and so on out of, the, out of uh, smaller companies. However, while they've been become much more aware, they really haven't prepared fully for the extent of those attacks. Remember that the Alcasum cyber fighters had redesigned their attacks to disrupt in a limited way, but not to actually disable. The, the criminals have a different objective. Their objective is to make sure that no one can get through. And so their attacks are going to be much more of a problem. And I think that uh, the smaller banks are not going to have prepared sufficiently for a full-blown attack. They're going to have prepared like most banks are, for these limited attacks for, for Alcazar cyber fighters. We have seen some banks come to us, and uh, we have them uh, now on some of our systems to solve those problems, but it's a very, very small percentage. There are still thousands of local banks and credit unions that I think are unprepared and unprotected. Um, certainly with some of the monitoring that we do as a global infrastructure company, we tend to see activities and, and we monitor and we haven't seen major changes in the way that the smaller banks are really setting up their infrastructure. Well, it's clear that any institution can be a target, but how can one make itself a less attractive DDoS target? 
So the, the first thing that's going to happen, when we talk about banks and credit unions, the, the major target vector that, that uh, they're going to have to face is going to be these fraudulent uh, bank transfers uh, as a result of the malware, its most typical Zeus and SpyEye and something known as Citadel. So what they want to first will be doing is trying to educate customers and educate staff and set up internal systems that monitor for indicators that that kind of malware campaign is going on. But beyond that, there are things that they can do that will make it more difficult and less desirable. The first is obviously to begin to put systems in place that at least defend the internal systems from uh, the attacks. So things like intrusion detection systems, intrusion prevention systems, firewalls. Uh, there's some, there's some uh, technology available in the routers to allow them to use what are called ACLs or access control lists. And that will provide a first line of defense. But that's likely to keep them up only for uh, a few seconds. It's going to uh, allow them to get maybe a bit of a breathing space before the uh, campaigns launch. Once they have that in place, what they want to be doing is making it visible to anyone on the outside that they've employed third-party organizations that specialize in defending. Um, I guess the best way to describe this in, in terms of everyday uh, activities are you know, the typical burglar when he walks down a uh, suburban street. He is not going to choose the house that has the high walls and the bird alarms and the dogs. He's going to choose the house that has no gate and that appears to have windows that have no alarms on them and no bars and maybe even a left half open. So for the opportunistic kind of criminal, that makes a difference. The equivalent of that in the uh, cyber world is when uh, criminals actually have a look at targets. What they look at is how the bank's infrastructure is set up. They look to see whether there's a third-party DNS provider, for example, one that's able to withstand large attacks. They'll uh, uh, perhaps uh, do some testing, believe it or not, and see if uh, the connectivity for a bank's website switches over to a CDN or perhaps to a DDoS mitigation company like ours. They, they, they know what to look for. They understand historically. And if they see those things in place, they're much more likely to look for another target, uh, a much softer target, and only come back to this target if there, are, if there aren't any other good ones left. So those are some of the things that a bank can do to actually make themselves look less attractive. The follow-up, Rodney. In the event that a smaller institution is struck, what can it do to minimize the impact upon the institution and the customers? A great question, and, and, and there are some things that can be done. Obviously, the, the most logical thing to do is to prepare in advance. One of the toughest things is to try and solve a problem when you're in the middle of the problem. If you have the ability and you have the time to prepare, probably the best thing you can do is put things in place so that when you do get attacked, and mark my words, as you said, no one is exempt from uh, being attacked. At some point, everyone is going to be attacked by someone. What you really want to uh, be doing is thinking about how you prepare in advance. Amongst the things that you would do is make sure that you have a third-party provider online so that when the attack occurs, you can relatively quickly switch your resources to the third-party providers. One way of obviously making sure that you have the resources uh, to be able to survive uh, certain levels of attack. The second thing you want to do is to have a communication process in place. Make sure that you have ways of letting your customers know that they need to go to plan B for banking. 
one of the worst things in the world is for an organization to be attacked and for customers to not be able to get any kind of information that tells them what's be, what number one what's going on number two uh, gives them a sense of comfort that it's actually being dealt with number three give them some uh, mechanisms or, or, or some paths to use in order to continue their business. So from a banking point of view, it would be letting customers know in advance. If for any reason you're able to reach uh, the website, uh, number one, you know, call in a local phone number or an 800 number and do your banking by phone. If you're unable to get through on the phones, make sure that the, uh, you know, the banks uh, have a plan in place that allows them to bring part-time tellers in or emergency tellers in because what's going to happen is people will come down to the bank in order to do their uh, banking. Uh, you know, uh, uh, The thing you'd hope they don't do is to come down to the bank and take all their cash out, and, and, and that's something that we obviously see as a worst-case scenario. But if you actually have the resources and you have the support, people are going to you know, continue to bank with the bank. They're not going to pull their funds out if they feel that in an emergency they have, they have a way of getting access to it. So that's one more thing that I would do. Rodney, what can institutions be doing right now to assess their own level of preparation for DDoS? There are a number of reports that are available, and I think that even as a, you know, as a company we have some uh, data that will give people methods of being able to look at their ability to withstand uh, attacks based on bandwidth. So, you know, if a bank has uh, has connectivity, there are, there are a number of ways of looking at it, looking at the amount of bandwidth, uh, understanding the kinds of DDoSes, and then assessing whether you know the bandwidth that they have in place or the, the mechanisms they have in place are useful. The second thing is to actually practice, which is you know on, on, at a given time or in, in maybe temporarily replicating their infrastructure, is to go ahead and have those dry runs or those drills understand what the limitations of the existing systems are and where the weak points are, then begin to actually shore up those uh, weak points, whether it's the DNS infrastructure. Uh, the web infrastructure is something I would expect most banks will afford of, but amongst the things they, they, they will discover, and it's, it, it's one of those things you only discover after your first attack, is that most banks have all of their resources on the same connection. So the website, the DNS servers, the payment gateways, as well as the staff access and the VPN connections are probably on the same you know, the same circuit that's connected to the local ISP. In many of these DDoS attacks, those pipes or that bandwidth is fully saturated. And if it's saturated in the case of an emergency, the banks are going to find it very difficult to have third-party assistance actually engage. There'll be no way for employees who might be at home, for example, to be able to VPN remotely because that VPN connectivity is shared with the website which is attacked. So in these exercises or in the preparation, the bank should be looking at how the various services connect to them. And if they connect on the same circuit, they should begin to look at splitting some of them off so that in an emergency when the most logical thing, which is the website, is being attacked, the other services are still available to you know, either to mitigate the attack or to conduct business. A final question for you. What lessons can we draw from other institutions that have been through DDoS? In other words, what mistakes must the community institutions now avoid? I think the largest one is to avoid the belief that what you have in place already is sufficient. When we look at the attacks from the Alcazar cyber fighters, 
the largest banks in the world were attacked. And those banks for many years have put lots of resources and lots of money into actually uh, protecting themselves from uh, large-scale uh, attacks of all kinds. What they discovered was that no matter how much you put into it up front, the chances are if there's a concerted attack, your resources aren't going to be sufficient. And so what you have to have is the ability to call on outside resources that are specialized and have the ability to help you. That's the first and I think the, the, the biggest thing. So the next thing that uh, I think that organizations need to think about, and it was something that we learned certainly over the last uh, seven or eight months, but we've been aware of it and just worked at it over the years uh, and really proved the, the, the mechanism over the last six, eight months, was the concept of sharing information even with your competitors. One of the things that companies believe intrinsically is that the last thing in the world you want to do is share information about attack or failures with competitors because your competitors are going to jump on it and they're going to use it against you. As it turns out, with the nature of these attacks and with the fact that the attacks target everyone, the best thing you can do is actually share information with your competitors because you may not be the first one to actually spot the problem. They may spot the problem. And if they prepare to share information with you, that helps you protect yourself, you probably are going to be expected to share information with them. And it's going to become a process that exists across your industry. At the end of the day, all of you will come out in exactly the same position. In other words, you all have helped each other, number one. And number two, you would have avoided your industry from getting a black eye. People lose faith not just in companies, but they also lose, lose faith in processes and industries. In the banking industry, it's a real issue, and, and I don't know how many banks realize that. Certainly uh, the large banks now realize it, but I don't think the small banks do, which is if people start to lose faith in the banking industry, the economy as a whole is going to suffer significantly. So what you really want to be doing is making sure that both you and your competitors uh, are, are sharing information about the, the profiles, uh, the kinds of attacks, because if you weren't the company attacked today, you probably will be the company attacked tomorrow using the same technique. Well, Rodney, that's very good. I want to thank you so much for your time and for your insight today. Tom, thanks very much for having me. The topic has been DDoS and community institutions. I've been talking with Rodney Jaffe, Senior Vice President and Senior Technologist with Newstar. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.